Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lafato, and on today's show, I talked to reporter Sean Galanka about a profile he worked on on a notable Nevadan named Jeremy Aguero. And after that, I talked to reporter Amy Alonzo about her story on abandoned mines and the state's effort to close them in Nevada. All right. Well, I am here with uh, reporter extraordinaire Sean Galanka. Sean, you have spent a ton of time reporting on this story, which we're going to talk about today, which is about Jeremy Aguero. Jeremy is kind of an interesting figure in Nevada, and we're going to talk a little bit about why you were reporting on him at all. But to start off, just for people who don't know, who is Jeremy Aguero? Well, off the bat, that's a, that's a complicated question, Joey, because it's one that I, I took several thousand <laughs> words to answer in a, in a story that was published last month. But in short, he is a, a policy and economic analyst who runs a private consulting firm based in Las Vegas. Why are you writing about Aguero and not other analysts? You know, there are not really many other major figures who are in the same space. Certainly, we work on profiles of state leaders, legislative leaders, but in the space of being an independent or private consultant or analyst or even a lobbyist. There there are a few people who have the same level of impact and involvement in state government that Aguero has had. And why is that? What kind of impact has he had? So he's an analyst. I explain, I guess, what an economic analyst even is. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, Aguero basically will consult, you know, maybe a private client like the Oakland Athletics or, you know, maybe a state leader like Governor Brian Sandoval former governor, Brian Sandoval, I should say, as an analyst, he is brought in on certain projects to help figure out a solution to whatever issue is at hand. For example, in 2015, Governor Brian Sandoval was looking for a tax to boost education funding, and he had all these parameters for what it could be and what could not be. And Aguero, who has pretty extensive experience working on tax policy, was brought in by the administration to, you know, help work out what was that tax structure going to be. I think Jeremy is an interesting person to look at because he he kind of is a way to talk a lot about kind of the interesting ins and outs of Nevada and the, the intricacies of the state and state government. But what made you want to report on this story? Well, you know, the story idea originally came from from another one, on, another person on our staff, a former special projects editor, Daniel Rothberg. And I, I had just kind of been talking to him about this idea it was kind of driven in part by the the entire A's baseball stadium saga earlier this year. And and that was something I got to witness up close as someone who was reporting on it in Carson City. But reflecting on what he's been involved in beyond that, it, it seemed like this would be an opportunity to kind of chronicle the the work that he's done and to, you know, more fully understand who is this person that, you know, has been involved in so many key state issues. And what has the reaction been to this story? Was, was any of it surprising to you at all? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't surprising. It, you know, it's hard to say, I guess, how, how the average indie reader perceived the story. <laughs> but, you know, certainly on social media, on Twitter, there, there was a subset of folks, primarily A's fans, who were very critical of the story. I think they believe it did not go far enough in in criticizing Aguero's role in, in the stadium deal. But frankly, I, I do think some of those comments were were misplaced and fail to understand the story in full. I mean, you know, that's a, a common 
thing with social media. People don't tend to take a lot of context into account. But but this was a story that was about a lot more than Jeremy Aguero's involvement in working for the A's and being a part of that stadium deal because his career has spanned so many more issues. And I think it was important to understand that. Um, while still, yes, you know, noting the fact that there were some legitimate criticisms of his work. You talked to a ton of people for this profile. What, what did some of the supporters say about Jeremy? I spoke with former lawmakers, with lobbyists, with former executive branch employees. And, and a lot of these people really praised Aguero's work ethic and, and the level of technical expertise he brings. And what about critics? Yeah, I think kind of to that point, a lot of the critics are, are kind of issue-based. Aguero has faced criticisms for for years and years now because he's involved in, you know, what are some pretty highly politicized issues, like, you know, just working on policy in a, a state government that is politically divided. He's also, there have been economists who have disagreed with the work that he's produced. And so there's a range of, of criticisms, I think, but a lot of them are, are really situationally dependent on kind of what work Aguero has been involved in. I found it interesting, you know, you wrote in your story that the only real criticisms you heard from people were when someone told it to you off the record because they were kind of afraid of being alienated by powerful people or powerful groups in the state. Does that speak to Aguero's kind of power and influence in the state? Or, you know, what does that say to you when you're reporting on it and people only criticize somebody off the record? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's necessarily his influence, but maybe a little bit more about Aguero's standing in the state. You know, certainly he's well connected within key le levers of, of state government and, and within the, you know, kind of powerful lobbying interests in the state. And he's well liked among that kind of class of people in the state. And so... You know, certainly Aguero is someone on the side of people who hold a lot of power in the state. Madam Chair, uh, members of the committee, uh, for the record, my name is Jeremy Aguero. I I'm, I'm also want to echo uh, Mr. Hill's comments about um, honored uh, to stand before you today. In terms of talking through the funding, the project funding structure itself. Uh... And, you know, I think one of the other challenges is just finding people who can deliver criticisms with authority. You know, certainly I could go on Twitter and find dozens of Oakland A's fans who are very upset with Aguero because he was, you know, very highly involved in the deal to bring the Oakland A's to Las Vegas. But it's hard, you know, to find those folks who have worked with Aguero closely and genuinely have concerns about the work that he produces and understand how he produced it to be able to, I think, legitimately criticize that work. Hey, this is Joey cutting in from the future here. Just to mention that a big part of this story was the fact that Aguero was not a lobbyist and was considered an analyst. And a lot of people would say that, you know, advocating for the deal uh, would have been something that would require someone to register as a lobbyist and they would need to disclose their clients. Aguero was considered a consultant, not a lobbyist uh, in this matter because he wasn't technically advocating for the deal as much as he was explaining it, but some people would beg to differ there. You mentioned uh, the kind of the deals that he's involved in, the A's. Uh, the Raiders were also a big client of his. He may have been kind of a target of A's fans and, and be speaking on behalf of the A's, but he is not a lobbyist. I think that that's something that's kind of uh, the consternation of certain people, right? It, it's, it's this weird fine line of being an analyst versus a lobbyist. I think the heart of, of the issue that arose this year 
which is that there are people who think that Aguero should have registered as a lobbyist. Aguero maintains that uh, he is an analyst and that what he was doing was not lobbying. But he did also admit to me in our interview that, you know, he would make changes to the way that he he spoke and the ways that he phrased some things. He kind of has this oft-repeated refrain of, I am an analyst, not an advocate. But he kind of expressed that some of what he was saying during those hearings perhaps was veering into the realm of advocacy, and, and that really is lobbying when you're being paid by someone and doing it in front of the legislature. And so, you know, certainly there's a fine line, and I think Aguero, you know, he says it was not his intent to, to do so, but I think just the nature of that situation also put him in a position where it, it certainly appeared a lot more like lobbying than past work he has done. And we, we kind of keep mentioning, you know, the, the A's deal, and he was also in, you know, very involved in the Raiders deal and then actually was uh, employed by the Raiders for a short period of time. And we've also talked a lot about how Aguero has his fingers in all of these different areas of the state. So you spent a ton of time reporting on Aguero. Tell me some of the stuff that didn't make it into the story, right? Yeah, I think something I, I found really interesting that I, I didn't put into the story or maybe, you know, wasn't a huge focus of the story was kind of the close-knit work he has done with state leaders. I mean, he's worked in some capacity for the past five governors of the state of Nevada. And I think he had some really interesting stories to tell about those folks, you know, kind of what, for example, you know, he was someone who who got to sit and watch how Kenny Gwynn operates. He's someone who, you know, worked closely with Governor Brian Sandoval on, on a few major issues, certainly with, with Governor Steve Sisolak. He was involved in some key things there, innovation zones. I'll, I'll just toss that out and let, let folks dig up more information <laughs> about that as they wish. Oh, yeah. Have, <laughs> have fun Googling that one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he, he was even on Governor Joe Lombardo's transition committee, helping Lombardo get get set up um, as he was coming into the role. And, and, and certainly Aguero, he has a lot of stories to tell that even that I did not get to hear. He talked about getting yelled at by by different governors. I mean, certainly there are, I think, some heated disagreements behind the scenes about how things will work that you just never really know about because... They're doing so much work behind the scenes to get some kind of finished product out there to, to you know, present to the legislature, present to the state. Do you guys have any thoughts or concerns about this particular power shift in this bill? It's probably not appropriate for you to answer, Mr. Aguero. <laughs> Senator Neal, for the record, Jeremy Aguero, again, I, I'm, you're right. I'm not, I don't have standing to talk about power shifts or something along those lines. That provision is designed, along with a number of other provisions, to ensure that um, there's sufficient security in the event that something isn't there. Well, and you mentioned, you know, he worked with the last five governors, and the last five governors have not all been Republicans or Democrats. Uh, So that's something you also mentioned in the story, is that he seems to make a really concerted effort to not appear, you know, leaning one way or another. Certainly, yeah, yeah. And Aguero, Jeremy Aguero does not even describe himself as someone who would, who would lean one way or the other, even if it's something he's not revealing. You know, he, he really presents his, himself as someone who who focuses on and works on the policy and, and just tries to keep the politics out of it, uh, which, you know, certainly is, is not a simple thing to do in our, our current time in Nevada. Yeah, I remember speaking with former assemblywoman and former state senator Maggie Carlton last year. And one thing, and you spoke to Maggie actually for the story as well, but Maggie kind of railed against term limits in Nevada. One of the things she said was that, you know, when you have term limits, you can't have these people with experience. You're constantly getting new people. But when you're someone like Jeremy, 
He does not elect an official. He's not appointed. He is a private person who can work with the government. But because he doesn't have those term limits, he has those decades of experience with lawmakers and, and with, with leaders. Is that something that you know can only kind of be done in the private sector? Yeah, I mean, I think perhaps to some degree with the current structure that, you know, I think looking at the pros and cons of term limits is, is certainly a whole separate story. But to some degree, uh, you know, this this story about Jeremy Aguero explored the structural changes in the legislature and why someone like him has gained a, a greater level of power, just kind of a greater role in the process, because you know, he's been doing this work longer than anyone currently serving in the legislature has been in the legislature. So the type of experience and, and knowledge he brings in terms of things like tax policy, uh, you know, financial models, it's just something that lawmakers don't have. And so they turn to folks like him for this kind of information and, and to get a better understanding of this kind of information. There, there are people who think that's good and there are people who think that's bad. On page 30, uh, section 31, you'll notice that there's a date that has been added to this section on or after July 1 of 2025. This is the section that specifically provides for the transferable tax credits. It essentially says that the transferable tax credits cannot... All right, Sean. Well, we, we've we've learned a lot, you know, about Jeremy. And this is a pretty interesting story. You spent a lot of time reporting on it. I think it's kind of one of the many people in the state that has a lot of influence that maybe the average Nevadan doesn't know that much about or doesn't even realize is having an impact on their lives. Yeah, thanks, Joey. Dangerous abandoned mines exist throughout Nevada and the West. Deep pits and mine shafts scatter our landscape. A simple peek over the edge could easily be the end of your life. That was a message Nevada state officials created as part of a public safety campaign about the dangers of abandoned mines. The billboards, commercials, and social media messages appear to be successful as there weren't any abandoned mine injuries or deaths reported in 2022. To talk about all of this and more is reporter Amy Alonzo. Amy, today you are going to be talking to me about abandoned mines in Nevada, a pervasive issue as your story so told me about. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Yeah, I had no idea until I talked to the head of the Division of Minerals. So we've got a lot of them. And, and, and why, why do we have so many abandoned mines in Nevada compared to other places? So we have, like, they're thinking a couple hundred thousand. And mining history in Nevada, it goes back quite a long way, I think 1849. And so, you know, we had people coming in, everyone from large corporations, to just individuals who thought they were going to strike it rich. So you have little tiny, just somebody dug a hole in the ground to these massive 2,000 foot shafts all across the state that were dug during the Comstock, during the silver rushes and the gold rushes. And until fairly recently, nobody had to clean them up. So we have been left with quite a few of them. So you just have these vast swaths of open land where people could, prior to any regulation, just go look for gold or silver or whatever mineral or ore they were looking for with really no consequence if they decided to leave a hole there. Yeah. And that's, is that kind of why these abandoned mines are so dangerous is that they're just giant holes in the ground that people can fall into? You know, some of them have signage and some of them don't. And so when I met with the head of the division of minerals and when I was reading up on 
some history on some of the injuries and deaths we had. It's it's across the board. There was one where there was a young girl playing outside of Beatty, Nevada, and there was just a hole and down she went. There's other ones. There was a really sad one from the 90s where there was a local teacher and a friend and they went into a mine in Virginia City area and that one was signed. It said caution. I don't know the specific wording of the sign, but it warned of bad air. There can be really bad air in mines that just where there's suddenly pockets of no oxygen. And they weren't that far back in the mine from the signs and they both suffocated. So it can be it can be people who have there's pit mines that fill with water and people will drown. Like it's it's across the board, but and a lot of them will have hidden dangers that you can't see over the years. Maybe maybe the mine is very deep and something like there was the Virginia City mine, the Foreman Shaft. This thing used to be about two thousand feet deep, and at some point. A part of the shaft collapsed in on itself so that it only looked about 150 or so feet deep, which is still pretty far down. But, you know, if you're an intrepid explorer and you want to get in there, like 150 feet is not super far down. But they have no idea what was underneath it. They had no idea how deep that blockage was. So if people were going down there, there was a chance that it could support absolutely everybody or there is a chance that it could collapse at any minute. There's just a lot of uncertainty out there because they're so old and unstable. Yeah, and so, I mean, I think one of the things is if you come across uh, an abandoned mine in Nevada, either whether it's signed or not, uh, don't don't go in it. You just don't know what's going on, right? That's the conventional wisdom is it, there's, there's people out there that are trained to go into these. You shouldn't just go exploring them willy-nilly. Yeah, that is definitely the messaging that the state wants to get across. But I also think it does tie into the fact that the state has been slowly chipping away at sealing off these dangerous abandoned mines. They have a long way to go, but they've definitely been working on the ones that are closer to population centers or heavily Mm -hmm. visited areas. Mining tunnels are mistaken for caves, but are actually much more dangerous. Old explosives, cave-ins, lack of oxygen, and venomous snakes are only a few of the dangers. Never enter what looks like a cave. Remember, stay out and stay alive. Part of your story talked about how it's pretty hard to close mines. Why is it so difficult to close a, an abandoned mine? Money is usually an issue. So when they close off the mines here in Nevada, it's not, they go through multiple processes to look at environmental factors. They do a really neat thing now where they convert a lot of them to bat habitat or wildlife habitat in Southern Nevada. Some of them now serve as desert tortoise habitat, but there's a lot of steps that go in between. We want to seal the mine off to, we want to create a habitat. And they can be quite pricey. When I was talking to Rob Burley, again, director Nevada Division of Minerals, he threw out some price tags for how much mine reclamation costs. And some of them are just a few thousand dollars, but the foreman shaft alone, which is again, that 2000 foot deep one in Virginia city that they did convert into a wildlife habitat cost almost a half million dollars. And so that's a pretty sizable price tag for a division that doesn't have necessarily a huge budget for mine reclamation. Yeah, and they don't actually get any money from the state, right? Where does their funding come from? 
So the Nevada Division of Minerals has a program that's just devoted to abandoned mines. And that program receives money through permitting and fees that active mines or prospectors are paying to individual counties or the state. Mm. So, so they indirectly get money, but yeah, they don't have a set budget each year of we get X number of dollars from the state. That is not something they can rely on. Yeah. And you also mentioned in your story, there is federal funding that that could potentially come to the state, but it's held up in the bureaucratic gridlock in Washington, D.C., correct? Yeah. When I talked to Rob, he and I asked him, like, where the holdup was on the funding. His answer was that was a million dollar question. I actually reached out to the Department of Interior and was shocked when somebody called me back within the matter of a few hours. Mm. It was pretty much unheard of. And <laughs> I, I talked to someone running the federal abandoned mine program. And she was telling me, you know, that Congress has said we want to dedicate $3 billion towards abandoned mine cleanup, but that money just hasn't trickled down yet. And she didn't have a firm answer for me either. She's She was also hopeful and waiting that that money would somehow come through. So far, only $10 million, I think, has has surfaced. And how much money and time would it take to, to ultimately close all of Nevada's known abandoned mines? Another four decades or so to just finish identifying all the ones that are dangerous. And then I believe it was at the current rate of funding about another century to seal them off. So it's going to be a minute. Yeah, well, keep your eye out for them. And hopefully, uh, you know, there's funding that comes through to help close all these mines. And and thank you for reporting on the story, Amy, so that people are more aware of what's in our backyard in Nevada. There's there's so much out there in the vast emptiness of the state that people don't know about. And your reporting is informing people about that. So we appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, it was a fun story to write. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I want to thank Sean Galanka and Amy Alonzo for being on the show today. This show is produced by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from my editor, Michelle Rendells. If you like the show, you can leave us a rating and review wherever you listen and email us at podcast at theenvindie.com. Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and myself. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I've been your host, Joey Lovato, and we'll talk to you next week.